Welcome to episode 126 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Chris King, Senior Vice President for E-Mobility at Siemens. An entrepreneur with global experience, Chris thrives on taking new technologies to market with a focus on decarbonization. He is a true decarbonization evangelist. With a track record of growing successful businesses, his expertise marries business acumen with technical knowledge in electric utilities, transportation electrification, distributed energy resources, electric rates, and power markets. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Chris founded three software startups with one IPO and one successful sale to Siemens, raising over $200 million in venture funding in the process. His roles have spanned finance, corporate development and M&A, strategic partnering, marketing and sales, legal and IP management. He's testified before U.S. Congress, state and international regulators, and he co-hosted the U.S. Congressional Delegation at the UN Climate Summit in Copenhagen, Denmark. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Chris King, Senior Vice President for E-Mobility at Siemens, and also a true decarbonization evangelist. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, Lee. I have to say my first memory of us together, I don't know what yours is, but mine is at a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse near my house in San Diego when you were with E-Meter and... San Diego Gas and Electric was trying to figure out what our back-end system was going to look like for smart meters. I remember that. And we were talking about meter data management systems, an exciting space that connected the smart meter networks with the back-end of the utility. Very difficult space that we got into after my first startup, which was Cellnet Data Systems, and we realized that that software integration was the biggest challenge that we had to solve. Those were exciting days. <laughs> With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? What first engaged you in the fight? This goes all the way back to seventh grade. We're just going into a new school. And then I remember this was uh, like two weeks into the first semester there. And we all got together in the auditorium and saw this film and it was about air and water pollution. So it, it wasn't about climate change per se, but it was about pollution. And it was just horrible. The scenes that they were showing, you know, and they were showing the runoff from mines going into rivers and all the air pollution coming out of factories and that kind of thing. And at that point, I was like, somebody has to do something about this. I want my life to be about improving these problems. Well, that was fantastic. I've said a few times on the show, I didn't get engaged until way later in life before I figured out that making a difference was the most important thing I could do. Yeah, I had that passion early on and have always been 
really attracted to the natural environment. Spent a lot of time hiking, doing other outdoor activities, biking, skiing, whatever. Did a lot of backpacking back in the day. Still do a little bit, but not much now. It's a little harder. Ground somehow has gotten a lot harder over these years. So the outdoors has always been really important to me and, you know, doing what I can to help preserve that. And of course, that translated into climate change as that became recognized as a bigger and bigger problem. And what's your biggest driver now? I would say the biggest driver now is the, and this gets partly to what we saw with COVID, which is just an increased sense of urgency. And one way I would describe that is I spent a lot of time up at Lake Tahoe. In the last three years, there's been a new season at Lake Tahoe, and we call it the smoke season, which is really sad, obviously, and it's coming from the wildfires. For two years, we essentially had smoke the entire summer. This year, we've been luckier. We had smoke for about a week or so, but that is a reminder, a very strong, vivid reminder of the climate change that's going on. Yeah. When you meet people that don't see things the way that you do, that don't experience that third season in Tahoe the way that you do, how do you convince them otherwise? One thing that I've noticed is that there is a a good level of understanding, really, about climate change when I talk to people. So that's gratifying. In terms of talking about it to people who are maybe not so aware of it, It's trying to get specific about some of the changes that are happening and how significant those changes are. So there are a number of graphs out there that show the level of CO2 in the atmosphere has gone up by 50% over the last 70 years, as an example. And then you show average temperatures, like looking at Las Vegas, as an example that's pretty extreme, where the average temperature in summer has gone up by about 10 degrees over the last 30 years. Another example is in Texas, same thing. The number of days over 100 degrees has doubled over the last couple of decades. I moved to the Portland area, and this summer we set a record of days over 90 consecutively. I did not expect that when I moved here. I promised my wife cooler summers. And Sacramento, for example, set a new record this year in heat. Yeah, I know Portland has always been known for being cool and wet. So 90 degree heat is definitely a huge change for that. Bone dry this summer, no rain. Yeah. Yeah. And in in our lifetimes, we've seen significant change. Uh, I used to live in the Bay Area and there you would have this fog pattern where the fog would come in in the summer. Every day it would uh, come in in the evening and stay and then burn off in the morning. And you'd have a nice 75 degree day. And now the fog barely comes in at all. It'll come in, you know, maybe a couple of weeks instead of, you know, almost every day during the summer. And of course, the average temperatures are significantly higher. What do you and what does Siemens do to help mitigate climate change? My role at Siemens is with the e-mobility business, uh, which is one of uh, multiple businesses within Siemens. So what we do in the business is we sell electric vehicle charging technology. And we sell it for all different types of vehicles, for light duty, medium, heavy duty, truck and bus fleets. We have some software that we sell. We have some services that we sell. 
So as a technology provider and services provider, Samus does all that. And of course, we strive to provide good or the best technology. But what we really do, and this is where I enjoy my role here, is we promote adoption of electric vehicles. And so what do I mean by that? Well, anytime we can, we, we of course, are out there promoting electric vehicles. But a specific area is around EV charging infrastructure for the public. Because if you talk to people, talk to my sister this weekend, they won't commit to electric vehicles now because of range anxiety, meaning they want to go on a long trip and they're not sure where they're going to find EV chargers to use. And eliminating that range anxiety is a major goal of what we're doing. Fortunately, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act passed last year has $5 billion specifically set aside to solve that very problem. And this is where there's a national infrastructure being built so that every 50 miles on every major corridor highway, there will be a fast DC charger for the public with high reliability as part of that. So we are active in terms of uh, supporting the rules development, as well as getting involved in the implementation. And one of the, the keys there is having open standards so that all vehicles can use this infrastructure that's out there. And the idea is at the end of this period, which is about four years from now, that people will be comfortable that they'll be able to find a charger, that it will be accessible to them, they'll be able to plug in and actually use it. As long as we can solve the problem of standards, and I'm glad you're working on that because it's so important, we're going to take the range anxiety problem and make it an old problem. Yeah, it'll be behind us in a few years. We're confident of that. We're just trying to make it happen as fast as possible. I facilitated some meetings with the Department of Energy. We had 100 to 200 people on each call representing different types of companies. And a lot of the customer companies, the UPS, the FedEx, they said they were ready to move their fleets over to electric for their trucks. But the utilities said that they need like two years warning or maybe even more. Not all the utilities, but a good deal of them said they wouldn't be able to deliver that fast. What is your perspective on that? The utilities are trying hard to support this transition. They have a lot of processes in place, as you know, having <laughs> worked for SDG&E. And I actually worked for pg and for a few years, so I was on the inside myself. Some are doing better than others in terms of you know, speeding up their evaluation processes and speeding up their ability to upgrade the grid, as well as looking at this issue of can you use batteries to reduce the size of the interconnection. Uh, some utilities are very resistant to that and others are very open to that. So as they get more experience, hopefully they'll you know, adopt these things and move more quickly. Yeah, maybe the utilities that aren't as concerned about it, in California, they said they're ready to go, for example. Maybe they can help the others by paving the way. Yeah, and you know, just talking about their experiences. And you would think, you know, California would be the most concerned because we have so much more EV adoption than anyone else in the country. And yet the utilities are saying, you know, it's turning out not to be a, a big problem. There's work to be done, no doubt about that. We talked a little bit about your days at eMeter, and now I'm finding out about PG&E. <laughs> Do you want to talk more about your prior background? Sure. So I started my career in the coal industry. 
if you can believe that. I'm having a hard time <laughs> believing that, given what you said about your seventh grade experience. <laughs> I came out of college. You know, I was very big on this stuff in college. I even taught a seminar called the American Wilderness. But my first job was with a subsidiary of PG&E that was actually building a coal mine in Utah. And the idea was that there would be a coal-fired power plant built on the Sacramento River, of all places. And the coal would be mined in Utah, put on rail cars owned by PG&E, and then delivered to the power plant. So my job was to put together the reclamation plan because this was right after this law had passed that if you were going to build a new coal mine before it would get approval to operate, it needed a reclamation plan as part of the permitting process. So that was my first job out of college. After I got my master's degree, I put that, that plan together. Now, as you can imagine, the plant never got built. The coal mine never got built. PG&E withdrew the application to build the power plant shortly after that. So then I went into the rate department at PG&E, and that was another big step in my career in the sense that they were just starting to experiment with this new thing called time of use rates. And I said, wow, this is really cool. I mean, here's a, a program that's good for the environment. It's good for the consumer because they can save some money. So I really want to get involved in this. And I took over the uh, operation of the first residential TOU pilot program there and eventually was given all of the TOU programs there. We grew the residential program to 100,000 customers, all voluntary opt-in. But a big problem emerged, and this is it's kind of an interesting example of how the industry uh, mindset works. Of course, to do this, you needed a new meter to put on the house. And so the initial time of use meters, what they did was they said, okay, well, we have a set of dials that the meter reader reads. So we're going to need to have two sets, one for peak and one for total. So instead of, you know, let's put a display on there, they said, let's have two of these, you know, old fashioned sets of dials and then have a switch built in to turn it on and off. So anyway, that was a very expensive approach. A $300 time of use meter, which in today's dollars would be probably about $1,500. So I got interested in metering of all things, trying to help solve the problem of how do you bring that cost down significantly. And that's what led me to my first startup, which was a company called Selma Data Systems. The uh, founders of that company had come to PG&E and said, we have this great idea for lowering the cost. And then uh, I ended up joining them about five years later in that endeavor. That was exciting. It was fun. It was fun. For the first iteration of smart meters, they were capable of time of use and remote meter reading, although they were somewhat limited in that regard. But one of the things that we're you know, really proud of is we developed this technology we rolled it out to something like 10 million meters around the U.S. And some of that, even after 20 years of being in the field, is still operational. So a very reliable technology. Can you talk about setbacks along the way? Well, I mean, there was a personal setback 15 years ago when I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. I was actually very lucky in that uh, my doctor had ordered a colonoscopy. 
I was younger than the, the normal age. You don't get those until you're 50 years old. And I was in my 40s. So they discovered it early. I had surgery and uh, chemotherapy and I've been uh, cancer-free ever since. That was uh, personal, uh, obviously, um, setback. And then in the industry, I must say, you know, with the, you know things have generally, I think, and you probably agree with this, Lee, I mean, things have progressed way faster than any of us thought they would as far as solar and wind and electric vehicles, smart meters even. The pace of technology development has just been fabulous. We had a, a big setback in California with the energy crisis and the deregulation, and that put things on hold for several years in terms of modernizing the grid and moving forward on smart meters. So that was a disappointing period in the industry. But I, I do have to say that I'm very encouraged and continue to be encouraged by the pace of technology development. Can you talk about the successes you're most proud of? So one of them was that CellNet experience where we came up with a new model, metering as a service. Everything's as a service now, but back then there was very little of that. And what we did was we went to utilities and we essentially said, we will take over your meter reading service and we will upgrade all of your meters to electronic remotely read meters. And we got our first contract to do that with Kansas City Power and Light. And it was a 20-year contract. The total dollars involved was over $100 million, 400,000 meters. And at that point, we were a company of 35 people and had deployed 5,000 units. So it was very exciting. We, we ran into some hiccups. We had to, after 50,000 units, we actually found out we had a parts problem that we had to actually go and retrofit those units. But it all turned out very, very well. We ended up going public. So that was fun. E-meter being sold to Siemens was great. One of the ones is I did, I've done a lot of policy work, uh, as I think you know, in my career. One of those areas that was exciting was the smart meter rollout in California. Spent a lot of time and effort on that one. Actually uh, filed a petition back in 2002 that was part of the uh, docket and moving that forward. And of course, the, the result was in the end, and I'm not taking personal credit for this, but getting you know 20 million smart meters out in California. Another fun one, which I actually, these are all connected in some way. It was the Energy Act of 2007. There was federal legislation. And we put in there some text about smart grids. And we actually put in language that said the federal government could fund smart grid projects and smart meter projects. And of course, nothing happened because there was no appropriation for that. But then we had the financial crisis of 08 come along. President Obama was elected and he did the era legislation and there was a placeholder. So all they had to do was put in money because this had already been authorized by Congress. So sometimes you gotta be patient in this business, as you know. I was on the other side of that. I was with Gridwise Alliance, also helping to push that through and more importantly, I was with SDG&E at the time. I had already founded the Smart Grid organization there. 
we put a very complex project together that was $200 million. We also put a communications platform in there and the communications platform did get funded with the grant, but the big complex Uber smart grid project was denied, which we couldn't believe. We had so many amazing partners and we were touching every part of a modernized grid. However, our executive team was so excited by it that we did a lot of those things anyway, just without the federal help. Yeah, you guys were always one of the best innovators in the industry. Those were good days. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about your vision for the future? How do you see the world 10, 20, 30 years out? Sure. So within an ideal world in 20 years, which puts us at 2042, we would have 100% zero emission vehicle sales. Of course, we'd still have a lot of ICE vehicles on the road at that point. It takes, takes some time. But I would hope by then that we would actually have 100% zero emission electricity generation as well. We are making a lot of progress in both of those areas. I think those are actually realistic. Part of that is more electrification so that you know, we, we go from gas heating to electric heating via heat pumps. Is probably the biggest way we can electrify and move away from gas. And it would be great if, you know, 10 years after that, uh, you know, the rest of the world were there as well. You know, Europe is going to be close to, you know, close to there in 20 years as well. The other countries are going to take some more time. Is that going to be fast enough to prevent a lot of climate change damage? Unfortunately not. We're already seeing a lot of damage and we're going to see a lot more I worry about the political consequences of that, with people being displaced from island nations, as examples, or places like Africa where drought's already a problem, drought's becoming a worse problem, and then you have these migration activities starting to happen. So those are things that we're going to have to deal with for my children and for my grandchildren in that regard. The one uh, quote that I liked uh, was from uh, Alexis de Tocqueville when he wrote about America back in the 19th century when he visited. And he said the, the one thing that makes America unique is America seems to always be able to figure out a way to solve its problems. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed, my friend. Indeed. Yeah, this is quite the challenge we're in right now. Did the pandemic impact how you see the future of the world? I would say so in a couple of ways. One is it reminds us of the fragility of health and of life and creates a sense of urgency, prioritization, you know, putting things in perspective. What is most important, getting, you know, more material goods or, you know, saving the planet. And we've seen a lot of people, I think, have a, a shift in mentality around some of those things. Can you share some advice about how people can help mitigate climate change? I just saw an interesting study on this. So my first piece of advice, of course, is get an EV. <laughs> so what else am I going to say? But the advice is to use it because UC Berkeley did this study and they looked at people who had two vehicles, a nice vehicle and an electric vehicle. And they found that the majority of the time, two-thirds of the people use their ICE vehicle more than their EV. 
first of all, get it and then use it. And one of the reasons that people don't perhaps use them as much is not understanding the economics. I mean, how much am I saving by driving the EV? Well, I don't know. You know, it's probably cheaper to drive than my gasoline. So I, so I always try to talk about the comparison. And there's this, this simple conversion factor, which is reasonably accurate. It's accurate enough for light-duty vehicles, where you just multiply the cost of electricity by 10. And that's your price of gas. So if you have 20 cent electricity, that's $2 a gallon for gasoline. So if you're thinking about, well, am I going to drive my EV for $2 a gallon or my other car for five? That's an easy decision. I made that up. I call it the price of the electric gallon. <laughs> and it's published in the Department of Energy's report on transportation electrification. I have a quote in there where I say that's what I used <laughs> at SDG&E to help convince people. That's what I used to use. Multiply by 10, baby, the kilowatt hour price. Well, I wasn't aware of that, but I will now give you credit. Thank you. <laughs> at least I got it in that report somewhere. Before that, I had no proof. Um, you said you had maybe a second piece of advice? My other piece of advice is just think sustainably. We hear this out there. You know, if you can, you know, reuse something or recycle something, do that rather than buy something new. Think about your eating habits. Maybe a little, a little less beef won't hurt us. Not to say stop eating beef, but just maybe a little less often. Those little things, uh, when can I take public transit instead of you know, drive my own vehicle? And on that note, I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. It was a film you saw on pollution and the impression it made at the new school you entered when you were in seventh grade. It turns out you worked for a utility just like me. You were in a coal subsidiary of PG&E. <laughs> Range anxiety. We know it won't last because you're going to charge EVs everywhere and you're going to charge them real fast. When we talked about time of use meters, you and I were both smiles because of the expense at having two dials. Everybody listen and save your life. See, it's worth the time to get a colonoscopy. We're going to have 100% EVs and 100% renewable generation too. And you want to get there by 2042. You are an evangelist. You're all about decarbonization. And the thing about COVID is it helped with prioritization. You want everybody to be just like me and get and use a brand new EV. It was so exciting, the enthusiasm you bring. I'm including this rap because you make me want to sing. Thank you so much, Chris King. <laughs> hey, that's incredible. I can't believe you put that all together while we were just talking. I'm excited and share Chris's optimism about EV and renewable deployment. The closer we get to 100% greenhouse gas-free energy, the closer we are to our cars, trucks, planes, boats, industrial vehicles, and everything else riding on the wind and sun and other forms of carbon-free energy. If you want to check out the report I referenced, 
head to evplusgridworkshop.com and download the Voices of Experience and EV Future Navigating the Future report. It's a great read, and the electric gallon discussion is on page 101. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. As Chris said, we can all make a difference by thinking sustainability. Be aware and conserve when you can. And once you get that EV, be sure to drive it whenever you can. In addition to saving significant money and gas at the pump, you'll be reducing harmful emissions and helping to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.